0: The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. So good to see you this morning. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to be back in the book of Matthew. We're preaching section by section, almost verse by verse through the book. Matthew's account of the gospel. So we're in chapter 11, and uh, I will read verses 1 through 15. If you have it, say amen. Amen. Use the table of contents if you need to. Nothing wrong with that at all. Pull it up on your phone. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples, and he said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the day of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear, O Lord. You may be seated. Well, I don't think we can overemphasize the importance of faith in the Christian life. How many know that there is no salvation apart from faith? Let me just read you Hebrews 11:6. It says, "Without faith It is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So it's no overstatement to say that faith is essential to the Christian life. Would you agree with that? Now most of you today are Christians, meaning that you have been saved gloriously by grace through faith in Christ. Can you say amen to that? Let's wake you up this morning. All right. So you're Christian. So you have saving faith. But let me ask you to be very, very honest today. How many of you within the realm of your Christian life have had your faith clouded by some level of doubt? Amen. Anybody? Anybody? I would argue that most, if not all, Christians will endure moments of short or short seasons of doubt. The great news is that we are not the first generation to deal with such a thing. We see in our text today that the great prophet John the Baptist expresses doubt in who Jesus is. Think back when we were going through Matthew chapter 8. Remember that Jesus was in the boat with his disciples during the storm. And when the waves began to crash against the boat, the boat began to sink. The disciples, though Jesus was in the boat, what did they do? They began to doubt. Jesus calmed the winds and the waves and then he addressed the disciples as, Ye of little faith. So if you struggle with doubt, I would argue you're in pretty good company. At Easter, we talked about Jesus' disciples. And remember, they'd been with Jesus for three years, watching His miracles, hearing Him prophesy His own death and resurrection. And yet, when He was raised, they had an incredibly hard time believing (laughs) that He was, in fact, raised from the dead. They were wrestling with doubt. I want to clarify what I mean this morning when I I talk about the subject of doubt. Because the Bible speaks about doubt in two main ways. Number one, it speaks about doubt that comes from an unbelieving heart. A hardened, calloused heart where the truth has been suppressed. Okay, If if you're there today, I, I would love to speak with you after service and tell you how you can come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the doubt I want to address in the message. But there's a second way that the, the Bible talks about that, and that, that about doubt, and that would be a doubt that creeps into the lives of true Christians. That's the focus of today's message. And so if you are dealing with doubt, or maybe you have a teenager who is dealing with doubt, I, I, want, I hope this message is a great encouragement to you. So I have three points that I want to bring from the text. Number one, why do Christians wrestle with doubt? Number two, how do we deal with doubt? And number three, how does God respond to our doubt? Why do we doubt? How do we deal with it? And how does God respond? So number one, why do Christians deal with doubt in their Christian lives? Well, there are many reasons probably that I could point out, but I want to hone in on one reason that leads to doubt that we see here very clearly in the text. And before I get there, let's just remind ourselves about what we know about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophet. He has the distinct privilege of being the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He has been announcing the arrival of Israel's Messiah. He's been calling, you might remember back in earlier in Matthew, He's been calling people to repentance and baptizing them in water and preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He, you, you may know, has expressed already a profound revelation of who Jesus is. Let me just read you this excerpt from John 1:29. John the disciple writes about John the Baptist. He says, When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, listen to this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, that's revelation right there. He understands Jesus' purpose for coming and his identity on some level. And then, remember, we read that John is the one who had the very distinct privilege of baptizing Jesus. So could we all agree that this is a man of faith? Yes, shake your head with me if you're with, at me if you're with me. But now let's go to our text. So this is the man who is recognized who Jesus is. This is the man who has gloriously stated that Jesus is the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world this is the man who baptized Jesus this is the man who has been calling people to repentance and now look at verses two and three of our text now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ he sent a sword a word not a sword by his disciples and said to him said to Jesus are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another Translation, are you really the Messiah that I've been preaching about? Or are you just another forerunner like me? John's faith is clouded by doubt. Why? I would argue here that it's because of misconceptions that he has about Jesus and the timing of God's plan. The timing of where he's at in redemptive history. John is a fire and brimstone preacher. He'd fit in well here in in eastern Kentucky particularly, right? He was a shouting, spitting preacher. He's not afraid to call anybody to repentance. As a matter of fact, this has landed him in prison. Herod Antipas, who rules Galilee for Rome, seduced the wife of his own brother. He left his wife and married his brother's wife. And that doesn't sit well with the Bible, just FYI. And for this great sin, John the Baptist publicly rebuked him. That didn't go over so well. And so Herod had John arrested, and now he is awaiting his impending death. And so it is from prison that John sends his disciples to ask Jesus this question, Are you the one, or should we look for another? It's intriguing. Why the doubt? I believe it's because John's current circumstances in his mind do not match the prophetic message that he had been given by God and that he had been preaching. Turn back with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 3. And look with me at verse 11. Matthew 3 verse 11. John the Baptist speaking here says to the people he's baptizing, he says, "I baptize you with water for repentance." But he who is coming after me, who's he talking about? Jesus. Who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that's the blessing, and with fire. Fire often represents judgment. His winnowing fork is at hand, this is judgment, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat, his people, into the barn but the chaff, the wicked, the unregenerate will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is coming to bring blessing, baptism of the spirit to his people and fire judgment to the wicked, the unrepentant. Be careful about praying for God or singing songs about Lord Lord, baptize us in fire because I think that means Lord judge us (laughs) right we want to be baptized with the spirit so think of this so John has said to all these crowds of people he's baptizing them saying listen I'm baptizing you for repentance but don't look at me because there's I'm pointing you to someone greater I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals And he says, listen, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me, he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to bless his people with God's very presence. And the wicked, the ones who reject God, he will judge. Injustice will finally come to the world. The tyranny of Rome, he probably thought, would be dealt with at this point. People like Herod would be dealt with. This is what he's been preaching. Now, think of this. Now, after preaching this, John, who has repented, is in prison and awaiting death, while wicked Herod is living life to the fullest. And so it's like, Jesus, if you are truly the Messiah, how could this great injustice occur? Have you ever asked that question? See, John knows his Old Testament. Isaiah 63 prophesied that the Messiah would bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, open, hear me, prison doors to the bound while John's imprisoned, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and hear me, bring vengeance upon the wicked. John is saying, Where is that Messiah? Where is God's judgment upon the wicked? Why am I still in prison bound? And John is actually not wrong about what the Messiah would do. But his misunderstanding comes in the timeline. He doesn't understand that Jesus in his first coming has brought the kingdom in part. But the kingdom will not be consummated until his second coming. So you could say that judgment is not forgotten, but it is delayed. And thank the Lord for that. You and I are here because of that great mercy. So let's just bring in some application here because I think that misconceptions in general are the breeding ground for doubt and cynicism. Did you hear me? Misconceptions are the breeding ground for doubt and cynicism. So I would say this was 20 years ago. I was first in ministry, I was serving in a small church. And I realized, listen, I've got to get a second job because $100 a week is not making my wife happy. <laughs> so I start, I'm going to date myself here, but I start looking through the one ads in the newspaper. There's no monster.com or whatever it is. I'm flipping through the n- newspaper and I and, and this job opportunity catches my eye. Security guard. Whoa! It's at a local factory. So interestingly, I, I didn't know any security guards and I wasn't on the internet yet, so I hadn't seen anything about security guards. Malkoff wasn't out yet. What, Paul Blythe, is that? What, what is it? Yeah, Paul Blythe. Yeah, that's it. So I conjure up these, as I read this opportunity, I, I conjure up these images of the job in my mind. And I can just see myself in that job. It's like, I want to do full time ministry, but I'll take this. My wife is going to be so attracted to me at this point. Because in my dream, in my mind, I picture myself in this kind kind of like special ops gear. And I'm sneaking around the the, the factory, hiding, lurking in the shadows, waiting to assail the great enemies who would break into Winchester Farms Dairy. (laughs) And I think, I don't qualify this job. I've never been an officer. I wasn't in the military. I've wanted to kill people, but I haven't. And so I apply, and to my delight, I get this wonderful $7 an hour job. And I'm thinking, man, this is a risky job. I, don't, I think it should pay more than $7 an hour. We're barely going to have more than $100 a week now. I have to get a third job. But, but I take the job because I have this vision in my mind of what it might entail. And it's going to be exciting. So I show up my first day. And I am pumped. And so the the, the hiring agency, they they bring me in and they say, I I want to introduce you to your coworkers. And I'm picturing these big buff dudes in like ninja-like gear. And they take me to an elderly woman who I think probably smoked 100 packs of cigarettes a week. And then they introduce me to the next guy. And he... It's very out of shape to be kind. And I'm thinking, no wonder they need me here. They give me my uniform. It's no special ops gear. No ninja outfit. It's an ugly blue uniform. It's too big. They show me my work area. It's not in the shadows of the factory. It's not in some catwalk where I could look down upon my enemies. It's a ten by ten building at the gate. They give me my weapons, and my weapons are not guns or tasers or billy clubs, but a clean, pen and a clipboard, which I will not use to assail my enemies, but I will use to write things about semi trucks that drive in and out. It's not what I'd expected. I mean, I, honestly, my first day, I am deflated, and I want to crawl under my desk. And just, I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, I'll tell you what I end up doing. I quit. I called the guy. I said, you don't have to pay me for today. I was misunderstood. I'm not coming back for anything. <laughs> pay me $8 an hour. I'm not coming back. <laughs> Why? Because of my misconceptions about the job, I was left jaded and frustrated. And so I had no choice, I felt, but to leave. Similarly, if we hold to misconceptions of the Christian life, of what it's supposed to look like, we, like John, will struggle with doubt and frustrations. And I would argue that many contemporary Christians have, in fact, misconceptions about Jesus and His purposes. They fail, like John, to understand the difference between Jesus' first coming and second coming. We read text about Jesus as healer. And while miracles happen, we believe them. Uh, we believe they can happen. And they do happen from time to time. The Bible really teaches, I believe, that complete and total and guaranteed healing will not come till Christ returns. We read about God's judgment on the wicked, and yet we see the wicked prospering while Christians suffer, and we fail to understand the difference between Jesus' first and second comings. Doubt then seeps in if those misconceptions are left unchecked. Is Jesus who He really claims to be? Dylan, if you would, I want you to put uh, the picture from Chuck Swindoll's commentary up here. I came across this. I think it's really, really helpful. So I want you to imagine for a moment the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah as two mountain peaks. So one peak, that first peak on the left, represents the suffering servant who would come to save his people. The other peak represents the triumphant king that will come and bring complete justice to the world. Peace to God's people. so Final salvation to God's people. Inaugurate God's kingdom and judgment for the wicked. So those are two peaks. Now, from the perspective of the first century Jews, because they only had the Old Testament, they, they saw the, the, the peaks as that first image where they look like they're connected they're right together but now because of the New Testament we know that there is a valley or a chasm between the two peaks and so what we need to understand and this is vital if you're gonna understand where we're at in redemptive history if you're gonna correctly interpret the Bible friends the church age is not yet on that second peak it is in the middle Christ has come, but he has not yet come back to consummate the kingdom. So we are in that valley. We are in the church age. We we talk about that truth around here by saying that the kingdom is already, but not yet. All right? Christ has come, the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it will not be completed, consummated. Until Christ returns. Are you with me? So it is a a great misconception to think that we're already on that second peak. And if you think that, and it's a lot of what you hear from television preachers. If you think you're there, you will be left jaded and frustrated. And you will be moved to doubt. So that, I believe, is the reason for our doubt. So, secondly... How do we deal with that? How do we deal with doubt when it creeps in? Three ways. And by the way, point one was by far my longest point. But how do we deal with doubt? Number one, we turn to God in prayer. And you might say, well, pastor, you're an expository preacher, and I don't see that in the text. Well, fair enough, but hang with me. If you go over to a Luke 11 one, I'll read this for you for the sake of time. Jesus was praying in a certain place, the text says, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, and then hear this, as John, John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. So I think we can safely assume that if, in fact, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray, that John would probably, if he had any integrity whatsoever, would have been a man of prayer himself. And so then I would argue that John, as he is in prison, has prayed many, many times. And I just want to encourage you to say that, that when you struggle with doubt, you can go humbly and honestly to the Lord. You can go humbly and honestly to the Lord. I love the, the words of the man. Remember in, in Mark 9, that this man came to Jesus and he had a, a son who was demon oppressed. And he said to Jesus, he said, I, I need your help, can you help me? And, and Jesus says, yes, anything is possible essentially is what Jesus is saying to those who believe. And here's, here's how the man responded. He said, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. What an honest and humble prayer. That's the kind of doubt I'm talking about. Lord, we believe, but God, we are struggling with doubt. Help my unbelief. It's a beautiful prayer. Uh, I came across a a, a prayer, a written prayer by an author. Actually, I have, I think, a a book of hers in, in the bookstore out here. But her name is Kate Bowler and she's a professor at Duke. She wrote a wrote a wonderful uh, book on the prosperity gospel and the history of that. And she's a, quite a young lady. She's a, a a young person, and yet she, for years, has suffered with cancer. And she's had to work through this and struggle through this when she was researching this book for her uh, dissertation. She was uh, she was researching these called prosperity gospel churches word of faith and they were telling her uh you know what if if you love jesus enough if you have enough faith you will not get sick or you will not stay sick and while she was researching that she was struck with cancer and she prayed and she prayed but she's still to this day dealing with those issues still and i found yesterday this Beautiful prayer because I'm sure through this, throughout this time she has struggled with doubt. Lord, are you truly the one? Listen to this prayer she prayed about doubt. She says, Blessed are we who come to you, God, in the discomfort of our doubt. For we trust that our honest unknowing is a truer and better prayer than bootstrapping efforts at certainty. Blessed are we, remembering that you, God, hold all things together. You are the invisible scaffolding that supports us. The canopy of love that protects us in the present. The stable pillar sunk deep into our past. And the dove that flies confidently towards the future. Bearing for us the peace that we could never obtain for ourselves. Blessed are we, she writes, settling into the truth that there are things that we cannot know. Settling into the humility that knows this one thing, that we are of the earth and you are God. Friends, when you wrestle with doubt, pray. Aren't you glad that we have a God that we can turn to in prayer, even in the struggle? So number one, how do you deal with doubt? You turn to God in prayer. Number two, you turn to His Word. And you might say, again, I don't see that in the text. Well, to deal with his doubt, what did John do? He sent his disciples to Jesus. Now, if you were to flip over to John chapter 1, John's version of the Christmas story is this: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. So, John reminds us that Jesus is the living Word. And so, John the Baptist sends Jesus to his, to, or sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him the question: Are you the one, or should we look for another? He goes, he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask a question, to gain clarity on godly things. And it's helpful. Who would have thought? So you and I can't go to Jesus. Yes, we can go to him in prayer, but we can't physically go to another town and sit down with Jesus, have a cup of coffee and say, Lord, hey, I just have some questions. Don't you wish you could do that? Because I've got some questions right? But we can't do that. So we can't go to the living word, but hallelujah, we have the written word. I've shared this story with you before, I'm sure, but when I was a pastor in Tucson my office was upstairs and I had a, I had a gentleman c- run up the stairs and beat on my door. And I, I said, sir, what's wrong? And he, he sat down on the other side of my desk and he said, pastor, he said, you know, I go to this big charismatic church. And he said, I had a lady call me out and tell me that, I was suppo- that God told her that I was supposed to be a pastor. And then he said, then another lady, same service came to me and said, oh, I heard a word from the Lord. You're supposed to sell everything you have and be a missionary in this other country. And then I had a guy come up to me me and prophesy and say that I'm supposed to do this and he's just going crazy he goes pastor I need a word and I had a Bible right here and I slid it over to him I said there's your word you want to hear from the Lord I believe in prophecy but if you want the sure word of God you open your Bible friend you want clarity about your doubts the, the misconceptions you might have you go to the word 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, uh, Paul writing to Timothy says, From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. They were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. He's talking about the Old Testament. And then he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. This book is not the same as the novels that you read. Or even the nonfiction books that you read. This is the living, breathing Word of God that brings clarity to our lives. And it says, all Scripture, it's breathed out by God. And listen, it's profitable for teaching. You want to learn about God? You go to the Word. For reproof, you have misconceptions about Jesus? It'll fix it. For correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every Good work. Struggling with doubt? Go to the Lord in prayer. Go to His Word. And number three, you turn to God's people. So you turn to prayer, you turn to the Word, and you turn to God's people. It says when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words by his disciples to Jesus. So while in prison, John is allowed visitors of which he takes full advantage. I would say that he's wise enough not to isolate himself in his doubt. I'm reminded of 1 Thessalonians 5.11 that says, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Friends, for many reasons the church is a wonderful and beautiful gift. Not the least of which is encouraging us in seasons of doubt. Aren't you glad you have one another when you struggle? See, many Christians today, particularly in this um, individualistic culture, we sometimes want to isolate ourselves in the struggle. And the enemy wants us to isolate ourselves. Why? Because when you're isolated, you're vulnerable. And you'll wallow in your guilt, and it'll just increase, and your doubt will grow and the struggle will overtake you but friends if you will confess your doubt or your sins or whatever you're struggling with to trusted brothers or sisters in christ they can stand with you and lead you in the scriptures and pray for you when you don't feel you can pray for yourself because i told you Open the Scriptures and pray. But you know, some of you have probably gone through such traumatic experiences in your life that you couldn't even open your Bible or utter a prayer to the Lord. I've been there. Thank the Lord for the people of God. We can share one another's burdens. So, how do we deal with doubt? Prayer, the Word, and the encouragement from other believers. Finally, how does God respond to His children? When we experience doubt. Number one, the Lord reminds us in our doubt of who he is graciously. I love Jesus' response to John. Look at, me, uh, with verse, look at verse 6 with me. Jesus answered John's disciples. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. He didn't say write him off. He said, go and tell him what you hear and see. The blind receives their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus is brilliant, and he's a Bible geek. I love him. (laughs) And he's pulling here together quotes from Isaiah 29, 35, and 42. I put those in your notes. You can go read those later. All these texts are prophecies about the coming Messiah. And they all mention miracles, and they all mention judgment. And Jesus essentially says to John's disciples, I'm doing what the prophets foretold. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor hear the good news. What's missing here? It's judgment. Why? Because in Jesus' first coming, He would bring salvation. In the second, He'll bring final salvation and complete judgment. And as we, in our doubt, we pray, we read the Word, we connect to God's people, the Lord reminds us that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the great Deliverer, the true King. And we might not be able to perceive it because of our circumstances. The Lord, in His mercy, reminds us of who He is. How does God respond when His children experience doubt? Secondly, He responds with mercy. He responds with mercy. So one, he responds by reminding us of who he is, and two, he responds in mercy. Look at verses 11 through 15. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no... He's talking to crowds now. There's risen no one greater than John the Baptist. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than me. Uh, uh, yet the one who is least in the, great, in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has suffered violence. The violence has taken it by force. For all the prophets, the law prophesied until John, and you're willing to accept it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. What I love about this passage is that Jesus does not berate John the Baptist to the crowds. He gently corrects him when he says... uh, He who is not offended by me is blessed. He's saying, John, I am who I say I am. And if you're not offended by the way that I'm running my Messiahship, then you'll be blessed. He reminds the crowds that John is a true prophet. Which means John is still useful though he's doubted. Remember when Peter sees Jesus out on the water and he says, Jesus, if that's you, call me out there. I'm going to put my sea dew aside and I'm going to walk on the water. So he, Jesus says, it's me, come on. And Peter steps out of the boat in faith. He begins walking on the water. Wow, what an experience. But then, circumstances. The winds and the waves are around him and he loses focus on Jesus. And because of circumstances, he begins to doubt and he begins to sink. And what I love about the story is that Jesus doesn't let him sink. To him who is able to keep us from falling. Listen, if you will cling to Jesus even in your doubt, if you'll go to him, he will not let you sink. Are you experiencing doubt? Confess your doubt to the Lord and boldly go through the throne of grace. You know, while I don't believe our um, doubt ever pleases the Lord, I want to be very intentional about saying that. I don't think doubt is ever pleasing to God. I do think, in a sense, it can be beneficial. Michael Patton, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, released an article not too long ago in which he stated that doubt is often the birth pangs of deepened faith. Let me just read you an excerpt from this. This is really important. He said, many of us become believers at an early age. How many of you became a believer at an early age? You grew up kind of in a Christian home. So he says, many of us became believers at an early age with a faith mediated through our parents who we trusted implicitly. Some of you have kids who are dealing with this right now. As we become older, our faith is tested through trials and temptation and suffering. And this is why our most significant doubt often comes during th- our 20s and 30s, he writes. But this is not a bad thing. He argues that we all need to consider that the truths we espouse might be wrong in order to embrace our faith more deeply. Now, when parents come to me and say, I have, I have a teenager who's doubting the reality of the Christian faith. I say, that's okay. Why? I I say, don't tell them they just have to believe. Point them to the evidence. And we've talked about the evidence a lot in this church. And I can give you resources to help you with this. Wonderful book that we have. I think we're sold out right now um, called Know Why You Believe. It's written for teenagers. Friends, to be a Christian does not mean you have to throw out your mind. There are logical reasons to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many evidence that, pieces of evidence that point to the reality of the resurrection. And if Jesus is raised, like, I'm going to go with that guy. I'm going to believe that guy, what he has to say. So when we question our faith, it sends us on a journey as long as we're led to the right resources. Our faith can actually become more real and deepened. That's not a doubt you want to let go and, and leave unchecked. But it can help us pursue truth. And I'm not scared for our people to go and to try to figure out what the truth is because I believe that this is absolute truth and this truth is the only one that will set you free. So today you're here and you're experiencing some kind of doubt. Maybe your doubt is rooted in tragedy. You've experienced loss and you say, God, in this If you're so good, I don't know how you could have allowed this to happen. Like you know God is a healer, but you have a family member who's been struck with some disease and you've prayed and maybe it's a mom or or, or a sister and and, and the woman of God has prayed in faith relentlessly but still lays sick in bed. And your faith feels shattered. Shattered. What do you do? You go to God. You go to God. Maybe, you know, you know the Lord hates divorce. But you've done everything you can to love your spouse. And your spouse has abandoned you. Been unfaithful to you. And you go, God, how could you let this happen? I'm I'm faithful to you. And you're left confused and dated and uh, jaded and guilt creeps in and doubt creeps in. Or you know that God hates wickedness but loves the righteous. But you see what's going on in our world and you see wickedness prevailing seemingly. What do you do? The question is in all of this... How can you trust a Messiah who doesn't meet your expectations? I think that's a fair question. How do you trust a Messiah who does not meet your expectations? And I'll just close by saying, you look to the cross. Because I don't have answers for why this and that has happened to you. But I know this, it can't be because Jesus is indifferent. Because He went to the cross to take care of your greatest need namely your sin the chasm between you and God and he took care of that sin paid for that sin at great cost but the precious blood was in his own body when we look to the cross we're reminded what, of what he's given us of his purpose is as the, of what his purpose is as the Messiah But friends, we're also reminded as we look to the cross and we look to the empty tomb that He's coming again. And on that day, every tear will be wiped from your eyes. Do you doubt today? Don't beat yourself up, but don't leave it unchecked. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Thank you for listening.